0: Good morning, church family. How are you guys today? at right home Well, my name is Mike Lindstedt. I'm not the pastor of this church. Uh, that's our pastor right there. His name's Sam. If it's your first time, we're glad you're here. Um, if it's your first time, know that we preach for generally one hour. So if you're not used to that, someone's face is like, are you serious? Yes, we preach for a while here, and that's okay, because the Word of God is the most important thing you could possibly concern yourself with. Um, For those of you who don't know me, um, I am a sinner saved by grace, like many of you guys. I'm a husband to my wife, Mandy. I'm a father to my fresh newborn daughter, Alexia. Um, I am getting sleep. Thanks for asking. Uh, (laughs) And um, Most of you guys know my story, but suffice it to say that um, I don't uh, have any merit of For me to be up here, Um, it's simply by the grace of God that uh, I'm able to preach the word to you guys this morning. So we are going to be in our text today. is going to be Luke chapter eleven. We're going to be looking at verses fourteen through twenty three. As you guys know, we preach through books of the Bible here. We've been in Luke for uh, a year and a half or so, and so we do a lot of expository preaching. And as I was preparing for this sermon it really just became evident to me as I was praying through, as I was doing my study, that there is a lot of cultural, culturally significant things that are occurring here that we as Americans in, in 21st century America just simply won't pick up if we don't really mind the truth and understand a little bit about the history of the Jewish people, the theology of the Bible from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna spend some, some time First, going over the theology of the Bible, the fact that the Bible is a unified story all about one person. And then we're gonna kind of begin to understand the, the culturally significant things that the Jews of Jesus' day would have been expecting uh, as, it, as it concerns their Savior, the Messiah, uh, whom we know as Jesus Christ. And we're also gonna understand the different groups that we're gonna see in our text. We're gonna get into their mind a little bit so that we can kind of take the position as one who would be in the crowds that constantly followed Jesus everywhere he went. And if I, if I can, if Lord help me, if I can do that, if I can help enhance your understanding to be just like a Jew in Jesus' day, I believe that we can truly squeeze all the juice out of this verse that, that is there. And so first I'm gonna lay out the biblical theology of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan, And then I'm going to follow the promise of the Messiah at its first mention, all the way back in Genesis. I'm going to follow that all the way through the Old Testament, all the way to Luke chapter 11, where we find ourselves today. Does that sound good? All right. So hopefully y'all got a piece of paper and a pen, because y'all going to learn today. Y'all going to learn today. Let's pray. God, I need your help. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, we love you. God, you are so merciful, so gracious, Lord. And Father, we are just in awe, Lord. God, as we just saying, Lord, it's, it's only by the blood of Jesus that we even have hope, Lord God. It's only because of the promised Messiah, Lord God, that, that we are not stuck in our sins, slaves to our sin, Lord God. But now, because of Christ's death and resurrection, and because of his blood that covers us, we can be slaves to God. We can be slaves to righteousness, Lord God. We can, as Taylor was saying, give our lives not to build our own kingdoms, but to build yours. So, Father, help me to preach this morning. Open the hearts of the people listening, Lord God. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would speak through me and deposit truth into the hearts and minds of those who would hear these words today. In Christ's name, we pray, amen. All of creation belongs to the Lord God Almighty. The entire world is, in fact, God's kingdom. And it was originally created to be cared and governed by God's representative on earth, which is mankind. Mankind and God were initially on the same side, so to speak. They were, they were like this. Man was in right standing with his Lord. But something happened. In the Garden of Eden, the serpent effectively separated mankind from his creator. The serpent, who is identified as the devil in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, deceived Adam and Eve into acting autonomously. They decided to follow their own law rather than God's law. Now, God's law in the garden was very simple. It said, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That was God's reason. After being deceived by the serpent, Adam and Eve decided to disobey God and sin and sin and death entered into the world. God subsequently placed a curse on all of creation. And since that time, Mankind has been an active rebellion against God's reign and rule, which is to say that they have been an active rebellion against the kingdom of God. Mankind's sinful desire is to divorce themselves from living under God's reign and rule and to live under their own sovereignty. Our sinful desire, church, is to be autonomous. At its very root, it is to be autonomous. What does the word autonomous mean? It is two words put together. Auto and nomos. Auto means self in its original language and nomos means law. Self law. Mankind as well as Satan and, as well as Satan and his demons have been engaged in warfare against the kingdom of God and in rebellion against his law ever since the garden of Eden. Despite this horrific tragedy, God in his great mercy and grace made a promise to redeem mankind from the curse. The promise is found in Genesis chapter 3:15 when God said to the serpent in reference to the offspring of Eve, I will put enmity between you and the, and the woman, between your offspring, referring to the serpent, and her offspring, referring to Eve. He, the offspring of Eve, will bruise your head, serpent, and you, serpent, shall bruise his heel. This is uh, called by theologians the proto-evangelion, or as I like to call it, the serpent crusher promise. Literally, it's about the offspring of Eve taking the head of the serpent and stomping it out. The entire Bible is structured around the unfolding of this very promise. However, the sad truth is that the rebellion of mankind is also described throughout the biblical narrative. So we can accurately describe the Bible as an account of the enemies of God, despising, <clears throat> despising his grace and mercy and desiring to live un- apart from his reign and rule. Just listen to this passage from Isaiah chapter 65, verses 2 through 7. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and this is what he says I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and, the, and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, Keep to yourself. Do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent and I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they have made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds." The Lord will defeat those who are in opposition to his reign and rule, to his kingdom. However, because of God's promise to Eve in the garden, there are some people in God's creation, that's you guys, church, who by the Lord's sovereign grace and mercy will be redeemed. These individuals are characterized by love for God and desire to live under God's reign and rule. Because of this desire, they they are thereby redeemed from the curse of God and saved from his wrath upon sin. Those individuals are referred to in the New Testament as the church. Now, the church in its original language is the called out ones, ekklesia in the Greek. So when we say the church, it doesn't refer to a building. It refers to you. You. And so what have they been called out of? Well, they've been called out of their rebellion towards God. They've been called out of their love for their sin. They've been called out of the separation from their creator. They've been called out of the cursed world and into the kingdom of God. Listen to these descriptions of the church. First one we're gonna read here is Ephesians chapter two, verses one through four. We say it a lot here, but it's, it's pertinent. It gets the point across. This is the apostle Paul speaking to the Ephesian church. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen to King David in Psalm 40 verses two and three, just describing the reality of his salvation. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet on a rock and making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and put their trust in the Lord. And finally, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, specifically making reference to the theology of the two kingdoms, God, he, God, has delivered us, the church, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So then the Bible is a historically accurate story of the war between two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. The Bible is a story of how the God of all creation decided to execute his redemption on all of his enemies who decide to love his reign and rule in their hearts and not their own. This redemption is from God alone, through Christ alone, and it is reserved for all the people who have had their sinful rebellion forgiven by God's grace through faith in the promised Redeemer, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the King of glory. So before we move on, Again, I just want to remind you that we have, before we get to the exposition, I think it'd be prudent to first orient our perspective to the Jews of Jesus' day, okay? Again, this is necessary if we're going to squeeze all the juice out of this verse, and in order for us to fully understand the mindset of, G- of the Jew in Jesus' day, we need to understand their history just a little bit more in depth. By this time in Israel's history, the people of God have repeatedly been oppressed by multiple nations, Ever since the kingdom of Israel was divided by civil war after King Solomon had passed away in 931 BC, the Israelite nation had been conquered and oppressed by five nations, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and by Jesus' day, the Romans. So prior to this oppression by these empires, God had sent his prophets to speak to his wayward people. The prophetic ministry had one singular command to the people. It was repent, or the kingdom, or or the judgment of God, rather, will come upon you. The prophets also spoke extensively about the Messiah, the promised one of Genesis 3.15, who would ultimately deliver the people of God from their oppression and establish his kingdom in Israel and rule the nations. Listen to these words in Isaiah chapter 33, verses 20 through 22. They'll illustrate Israel's expectation of salvation and deliverance from foreign rule. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts, Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Again, in Isaiah 35, verses three through six, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And then listen to the way the Old Testament itself ends in Malachi chapter four verses one through six. This is extremely important. Listen, here we go. For, the, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear the name, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from stalls and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with an utter utter decree of destruction." The sad time, the sad truth is by this time in Israel's history, the people of God became so wayward, so wicked, so similar to the rest of the world that the judgment of God did in fact come. It was this, it was this, it was if the the kingdom of darkness had prevailed against the kingdom of God. And if it weren't for the promise of redemption in in Genesis 3.15, then the kingdom of, of darkness very well may have consumed the hearts of mankind. But the Old Testament is left wide open and its readers have a massive need on their minds. We need the Messiah. The end of the Old Testament is left hanging open with the promise of salvation in the day of the Lord, which will be initiated by the announcement of the Lord's coming by the one who comes in the power of Elijah the prophet. So needless to say, the messianic expectations of the Israelite people were maxed out, right? They had received a promise of salvation, By this time, they're awaiting Elijah the prophet to come and announce the arrival of their king. They're ready for deliverance. I mean, and rightly so, right? I mean, look, by the time Jesus is born, it's been 900 years since the kingdom of Israel has been split, 700 years since Isaiah's prophetic ministry, and 400 years since the close of the Old Testament in Malachi. talk about patient endurance. I get impatient if I have to wait a week for a package to come. Lord, help me. Now, the wide-open ending of the Old Testament is not random. And in fact, the gospel writers all pick up right where it leaves off. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to follow this thread. We're going to follow this thread. Luke chapter 1, verses 16 through 17 is where we're going to start. I want you guys to notice how Luke begins his gospel. Listen to the angel Gabriel speak to Zacharias about his son, who is to be born, in Luke chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. This is the angel speaking here. And he will turn, speaking of the son of Zacharias, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and, to, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a, di- a people prepared. Gabriel is telling Zacharias that your son is the one who was spoken of by the prophet Malachi. Malachi. And check this out, but this is fascinating. It's a little bit of a side note, but check this out. The meaning of the names of all of John's family members in Hebrew are extremely significant. The name Zacharias in Hebrew means Jehovah remembers. The name Elizabeth, who's John's mom, means the oath of God. And the name of John the Baptist himself in Hebrew means Jehovah has shown grace. So basically, the family members' names can be said this way. Jehovah remembers his oath to show grace. Grace. That's the end of the Old Testament. Jehovah making a promise to show grace. That's the meaning of their names. Talk about, just meditate on that for a little bit. I mean, God is in control. <laughs> the Old Testament ends with a promise of salvation. We know that salvation is by grace through faith alone, but faith in what? Faith in the word of God, faith in the promises of God. Well, who is the word of God? Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And what does Jesus' name mean in Hebrew? The Lord is salvation. He is the promise of God. Are you guys picking up what I'm putting down here? You guys getting it? Okay. So Luke's primary focus in his gospel narrative is the coming of the Lord's salvation and the advancement of his kingdom over the kingdom of darkness. This is what the entire Bible is all about. This loaf of bread, as I like to call it right here, the bread of life, the whole thing is about what we've just described. And so now that we know that, because the Jews would have known that of Jesus' day, this would have been like, yeah, why are you telling me this? I already know this. The Jews would have understood that. And so now that we understand that, let's get the perspective of the crowds. Let's get the, the, let's, I wanna shape your guys' perspective to be, again, like, like you were in those crowds who constantly followed Jesus wherever he wants. Jesus was very famous by this time. He had a lot of people following him. And so as a person that would have been following him, hearing all of the varying opinions that we're going to go over in detail, you at some point would have to make up your mind about Jesus. So I want to draw your attention to the development of the varying opinions about Jesus' identity amongst the crowds that are stated in Luke's gospel. So now turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 4, verse 14. This is where Luke begins the thread about the rumors concerning Jesus' identity. Luke chapter 4, verse, 15, verse 14 says this, and Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. Now that word report here in the Greek is the Greek word pheme, which means a saying or a rumor. Well, what was this rumor? Well, allow me to speculate a little bit. It probably went something like this. Dude, did you see what Jesus did the other day? Or oh, you mean when he's exercising that demon out of, out of old boy? Yeah, that was nuts. You think he's the Messiah? I don't know, man. But he's but he's saying he is, and he's doing the things that the Messiah is supposed to be doing. I don't know, man. What do you think? I don't know. I don't know. Now this rumor quickly develops into sensational news. Check it out, verse four or verse thirty-seven in chapter four. And reports about him, Jesus, went out into every place in the surrounding region. Now again. The word for report here is not the same word in the Greek that was used in verse 14. The word for report here is the Greek word eikos, or echoes. And it means a loud or confused noise, a roar or an uproar. So between verses 14 and verse 37, the rumor about who Jesus is has developed into an uproar. Could this be the Messiah? How did this happen, though? What did Jesus accomplish between these two verses? These two verses. Well, for starters, back in verse 16 through 21, Jesus made a direct claim to being the promised one when he read Isaiah 61 in the synagogue, and he literally said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Next, after being rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus amazed all who heard him as he taught in the synagogue of Capernaum. And while he was teaching in the synagogue with pronounced authority, he also silenced a demon and cast a demon out of a man who was in the synagogue using only the words in Greek, be muzzled. He looked at the demon, and he said, be muzzled, and get out. And the demon did it. And by the way, while the demon was being exercised, this is what the demon said. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So it's certainly understandable that the patiently awaiting Israelites were extremely excited about the possibility of the Messiah's coming. By the time that Luke chapter 5, verse 15 rolls around, this word report had become an established account. Turn to Luke chapter 5, verse 15. Here's what it says. By now... Or but now, even more, the report about Jesus went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Again, the word for report in this passage is not the same word as in the previous passages. The word for report here is the Greek word logos, and it can refer to something said, an account, a thought, or a doctrine. It basically conveys the sense of established truth. So notice the progression of the saying about Jesus that went from simply a rumor to an uproar, to a doctrine in 46 verses. Wow, he's right. So the crowds that followed Jesus were simply amazed about the possibility that this Jesus could in fact be the Messiah. He was certainly claiming to be the Messiah and he was certainly backing up those claims with the correct actions that verified those very claims. However, not everyone was convinced I mean, even Jesus' own family members were were a little skeptical. In Mark chapter 3, verse 21, his family members are documented as saying, Jesus is out of his mind. (laughs) We're going to look at John chapter 7, verses 12 through 13, and I just want you guys to notice some of of the, the sayings that were going around, and this is during the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. Verse 12 says, there was much muttering about him amongst the people. While some said, he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So the official narrative and opinion about Jesus were really somewhat divided, but who were these Jews? Who were these Jews that instilled fear in the hearts of the people? Well, they were none other than the religious elite of Jesus' day. The religious elite of Jesus' day were comprised of six main religious political groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Zealots, the Sicarii, and the Essenes. Now, out of these six, there's three of them in the gospel accounts that are described as being opposed to Jesus. And so we're going to take a look at those three. I told you, it's a lot of information, but it's necessary. So the first group that we're going to look at is the Pharisees. Most of us have heard about the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees were comprised mainly of the Jewish middle class. They were basically tradesmen, lawyers, scribes, merchants, and they were the most numerous of all the Jewish parties. And they have their roots as religious freedom fighters during the intertestamental period, which is the time period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. These guys were fiery and zealous. Just imagine, if you guys don't have any examples in your mind, the Apostle Paul. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. In fact, he used to persecute the people of God because he thought he was doing God a service. He thought he was being obedient to God. I'm gonna kill those Christians because they're blaspheming the name of God. I mean, these guys were fiery and zealous. They served as the moral authority for most Jews during Jesus' time because they exercised great control over the people because they they had established great control over the synagogues, which were vital to a Jew's social standing. If you were a Jew and you weren't allowed in the synagogue... You were essentially cast out of society. And the Pharisees taught that the way to God was, was to obedience to Torah or the law. They actually believed that the practice of the law or practice of Torah would usher in the kingdom of God, thus justifying their zealousness. But they also developed what was known as the oral traditions, which were their interpretations of God's law. And they counted these interpretations as equal with God's law. Now, Jesus condemns the oral tradition in Mark chapter seven, verse nine, when he says to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. So these were the progressives of Jesus' time in a sense, because they changed Judaism from a religion of sacrifice to a religion of law keeping, but more specifically to keeping their interpretations of the law. That was more important to them. And that's why they opposed Jesus, because he did not accept their interpretations as binding. Next, we have the Sadducees. You guys can think of the Sadducees as essentially your conservative aristocrats. They were the party of the wealthy high priestly families, and they were materialistic primarily in their outlook. They were in opposition to the progressivism of the Pharisees because they were conservative. They practiced the literal interpretation of the law, which for them, was the first five books of the Old Testament, not the whole Old Testament. They chose to just follow the first five books. (laughs) And they opposed the oral traditions, obviously, as obligatory and binding. They were staunch supporters of the Roman political structure at the time because they were positioned to gain more power the more that Rome was in control. And they were in opposition to Jesus because they they believed that he threatened their positions of wealth and power. Lastly, the Herodians also opposed Jesus. They were members of um, the wealthy, politically influential Jewish um, political groups that supported Herod Antipas and, and other Herods as the rulers over Palestine. They were, they were for Hellenization, which is just the spreading of Greek culture throughout the Palestinian land, and they were positioned, again, like the Sadducees, within the political power structure of the time to be direct beneficiaries of this foreign rule. And in the gospel, of, according to Mark, they joined the Pharisees in their plot to kill Jesus. So needless to say, there was quite a lot of vying for power during this tumultuous time in Jewish society. The religious and political tensions were very high. As the people of God wondered whether or not this man, Jesus of Nazareth, could in fact be the promised Messiah, the Holy One of Israel. Now, let's just take a second to pontificate for a second. (laughs) The religious elite knew the Old Testament. They knew the Word of God. It's it's not like they didn't understand what it said, right? I mean, if 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 you study the history of the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees started memorizing the Old Testament as early as three years old. It's not like they were unaware of what, what it said. So why did they hate Jesus Jesus so much? I mean, you'd think they would just be just as excited about, the rest, about his coming as the rest of the crowds were, right? Well, let's dive into that a little bit. Let's go to Luke chapter five, verses 17 through 21. And this is where we see the first mention of the Pharisees in Luke's gospel. First mention, when you're studying your Bible, by the way, is very important. So this is where we see the first mention of the Pharisees in Luke's gospel. And it says this, one day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord is with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, "'Friend, your sins are forgiven.'" But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to think to themselves, "'Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? "'Who can forgive sins but God alone?' Notice, the Pharisees were thinking, "'Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy?' In Judaism, blasphemy was the crime of assuming to oneself the rights or qualities of God, or attributing to oneself the attributes of God." The religious elite initially charged Jesus with being a blasphemer, and it was ultimately this charge that they condemned him with. Let's take a look at John chapter 10, verse 33. The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Again, in Matthew 26, verses 65 through 66, Jesus here is standing before the high priest, and the high priest says, after he tears his clothes, he has spoken the blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, you yourself have heard the blasphemy. What do you think we should do? Well, we think he's worthy of death, they answered. Next, let's look at Luke chapter six. You can turn in your Bibles if you like to that chapter, verses six through 11. And here we have two occasions where Jesus and his disciples are just doing things on the Sabbath, which weren't against God's law, but they were against the oral tradition of the Pharisees. Let's take a look. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at all of them, he said to the man standing in front of him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And the hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do with Jesus. So by healing through his word and not actually exerting any physical effort, Jesus circumvents the religious leader's view of the law, which classified healing as a work. (laughs) This made the religious elite literally lose their mind. The Greek word here translated fury in this passage is the Greek word anoya, which literally means stupidity, but it implies implies rage, folly, or madness. Anoia is a composition of two Greek words, enyo, which means without, and noce, which means the intellect or the mind. So it's accurate then to translate this that or it's accurate to say that when Jesus publicly challenged them, they literally responded without the mind. They lost it. They lost it. They got, they got so angry that they lost their mind. They were seeing red and they're, they're done with Jesus. They're over it. It's time to come together, guys, and defeat Jesus. Now look, the religious leaders didn't like each other. So it's not like they were all buddies just hanging out. They, they necessarily had to exist with one another, but they didn't like each other. But you know why they came together? Kill Jesus. Let's get rid of this guy. He's coming against us. So the religious elites began to develop a smear campaign against Jesus from this point forward. They began to say things like Jesus was a Sabbath breaker. He was a glutton, a drunkard, a non-traditionalist, and a satanically inspired deceiver. These are the things that they would say to the crowds while Jesus was teaching and performing miracles in order to discredit him. But what was it that they actually thought? We're gonna to go to John chapter three. <clears throat> We're gonna look at verses two and four. And here we see a, a, a Pharisee named Nicodemus who according to John 3.10 was one of the top teachers in all of Israel. And he told Nicodemus to his, or he told Jesus to his face that they, meaning the Pharisees, knew that Jesus was a teacher who was from God because he did the things that only God could do. So they actually thought he was from God, but instead of responding in faith and repentance, responded with hardness and bitterness of heart. The religious elite ultimately decided that Jesus must die. Even though his power was undeniably from God, as far as they were concerned, he was a threat to their power. And the religious elite loved their power. They loved their autonomy with all their heart. Let's look at Matthew chapter 23, verses one through six. This is Jesus just giving you a great description of the heart of the Pharisees. "'Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, "'The scribes and the Pharisees sit on on Moses' seat. "'So do and observe whatever they tell you, "'but not the works that they do. "'For they preach, but they do not practice. "'They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, "'and lay them on people's shoulders. "'But they themselves are not willing "'to move them with their finger. "'They do all their deeds to be seen by others, "'for they make their phylacteries broad "'and their fringes long.' And they loved the place of honor at feasts and the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Look, the religious elite loved public honor and Jesus publicly humiliated them time and time again. And thus they were filled with irrational hatred for their Messiah. This is why they hated Jesus. So with all of this information now to enhance our understanding of where we find ourselves in today's text, I have one final thing to say to you before we get into the exposition of our text. The fact that Jesus backed up his claims with divine miracles has significant ramifications for our faith. Faith is not wishful thinking, as the unbelieving world sometimes likes to say it is. Hebrews 11.1 defines faith for us as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. This assurance and conviction is based on historically accurate truth. Jesus literally Walked the earth, and he literally did the things that are described in the gospel narratives. There are even sources that are outside of the Bible that corroborate Jesus' existence. Take a look at this. This is from Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, not a believer, and he was writing around 90 A.D. At this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was made to be known, or, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among, among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon their loyalty to him. They reported that he appeared to them three days after the crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, they believed that he was the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. Guys, the Bible is not fairy tales. The gospels are historically verifiable eyewitness testimony of the very one of whom the Old Testament prophets spoke of. Christian, believer in the room, just remember that next time you are confronted about your faith. Remember that. The evidence has been made absolutely clear. Jesus is who he says he is, and the Bible makes this absolutely clear. There is no need for further evidence. And if you are hearing this message today and you're not sure about who Jesus is, then it is time for you to make a decision. And that is the one point and the one focus of our text today. Are you with Jesus? Because if you're not, then according to Jesus's own words in our text, you are against him. This is the main point, guys, of this entire thing today. You are either in the kingdom of God or you are in the kingdom of darkness. There is no middle ground. Now let's turn to our text in Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 23. Let's get to our exposition. Thank you guys for being patient and listening to all that information there. Chapter 11 of Luke, starting at verse 14, I'm going to read through 17a. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute, and when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts. Now, now here we see Jesus engaged in spiritual warfare. Remember, Jesus is the king of all creation, and he's performing an exorcism on a poor soul who's demon-possessed. And this exorcism, just like the many other ones that Jesus performed, was completed amongst the multitudes for all to see and most likely accomplished through the spoken word. This method of using the spoken word is very significant. Although there's no mention of demons ever being cast out of a person or a place in the Old Testament, by this time period, exorcisms have become somewhat common. For example, in Mark chapter 9, verse 38 through 41, it makes a reference to someone who did exorcisms in the name of Jesus, although he himself didn't follow Jesus. And in another example, in Acts chapter 19, verses 13 through 16, we see Jewish exorcists in Ephesus called the sons of Sceva unsuccessfully attempting to exorcise a demon in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preached. And Jesus himself in Luke chapter nine, verse one, and 10, verse 19, gave his initial followers the ability to cast demons out. And even in our text today, although the religious elite attributed Jesus' power over demons to the incorrect source, They weren't surprised by his ability to cast out demons as if it were like something they had never seen before. So what was the typical process of exorcism? According to ancient Mesopotamian texts, the usual technique that was utilized by exorcists was to adjure the demon by name, if possible, through the power of one or more gods to depart the one possessed. So what God are we gonna use this, this service for the false gods? I'll use Zeus again. So it goes something like this. In the name of Zeus, I adjure you, demon, come out. So that's the first part. Secondly, there would be a lot of herbs that would be prepared, and and, uh, these things called amulets, which you can basically think of them as lucky, good luck charms. They would wear these amulets and prepare herbs, and then they would repeat these magical phrases, extended, repeated syllables. All of these things were were a process of this magic show. (laughs) And in contrast to this process, this magic show, Jesus simply said, be muzzled and get out, and the demon did it. Jesus relied solely upon his own unique power to demonstrate that satanic forces had no place or power in his kingdom. Jesus simply spoke the word and exercised his power over the kingdom of darkness. Guys, this is the fundamental difference. Magic show, spoken word. Big difference. And once Jesus exercised a demon out of somebody, that person was forever freed. For as you Christians in the room know, when the sun sets you free... The demons never came back to haunt those individuals who were saved by Christ. The qualitative difference, both between the method and the result, were enormous. And we'll talk about that more in just a minute. Next, what do we see in these first few verses? Let's look back at the text. We see three different reactions from the crowds, admiration, slander, and testing. And the crowds undoubtedly consisted of fans of Jesus, religious elite, and disciples of Jesus. So we're going to look at the reaction of the fans and the religious elite here. It says that the crowds marveled. The Greek word is tamazō, which means to wonder, or it, it implies admiration. Jesus had many admirers. And these admirers constantly followed Jesus wherever he went. But these admirers are not to be confused with true disciples. Let's look at John chapter six. We're going to read verses 60 through 66. But what Jesus is doing here for context is he's teaching on his flesh and his blood. And he says in verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. And when many many of his disciples heard it, they said, man, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Once the teaching of Jesus got difficult, his admirers were not so enthusiastic about following him. I imagine that there were many of these individuals that came and went as Jesus traveled throughout the promised land, and it's sad to see. Next, we see a group of mockers and slanderers in our text, and this group is constantly testing Jesus. They're constantly asking him to produce miracles in an ever-increasing, extraordinary fashion, and who are also perpetuating the smear campaign against Jesus. The smear campaign, again, was an attempt to discredit Jesus in any way possible, and its most heinous tagline was, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Now, this smear campaign had been going on for some time, and we're going to look at the evidence for why we, can, we know that this smear campaign has been going on. Let's look at verse 15 in our text. It declares that some in the crowd even repeated the tagline, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Now, the Greek word in verse 15 for said here is the Greek word epo, and it is a verb that is used only in the definite past sense. and can basically be said to speak, to tell, or to say on. Essentially, the idea here is that this slander had been one of the sayings. That's, the Greek, that's what the Greek is trying to tell you. This, this is one of the sayings that has been going around, going around in the crowds. It's not something that they just, just simply just concocted on the spot. This is one of the sayings that had been said. So now let's look at a similar account to our text in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 24. This is a different um, uh, situation, and we're gonna see how we know that. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, "'Could this be the son of David?' But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, "'It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, "'that this man casts out demons.'" Now, this account is from roughly two years before the time period that our text in Luke is set in. How do we know that? Well, two reasons. Number one, chronologically in Jesus' ministry, we know that Jesus starts his ministry in Galilee, and he hadn't yet set his face to go to Jerusalem in the Matthew 12 text. Starting in in chapter four of Matthew, verse 23, we see Jesus begin his ministry in Galilee, and we don't see Jesus leave Galilee until Matthew 19, verse one which plainly states that Jesus departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. In our text, in the Luke text, Jesus had already set his face to go to Jerusalem in chapter nine, verse 51. You remember Sam was preaching on that not too long ago. And according to Luke chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus was currently in this, part, in this portion of text in the village of Mary and Martha, which we know from John chapter 11, verse one, to be, to be in a town called Bethany, which when you pull up a map, of that Jesus' day, Bethany was roughly 60 miles away from Galilee, located in Judea. The Bible will tell you all these things. That's verse number one, or sorry, that is reason number one. Number two, the demon-possessed man in Matthew 12 is both blind and mute, whereas the demon-possessed man in chapter 11 of Luke, just mute. So definitely different occasions here, but essentially the same teaching by Jesus and definitely the same antichrist propaganda by the religious elite. And there are, there are many other times that the religious elite spewed their slander against Jesus and the crowds, acted basically just like parrots and just repeated false information. Let's turn in John chapter seven to take a look at some of these interactions between the smear campaign and the crowds. And again, this is necessary, guys, if we're going to really understand the depth and the weight of what Jesus says in the end of our text today. John chapter seven, verses 12 through 20 is where we're going to go first. It says this, and there was much muttering among him, uh, about him amongst the people. And while some said he is a good man, others said no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews therefore marvelled, saying, "How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied?" So Jesus answered them, "My teaching is not my own, but but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God." or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who speaks on the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. So why do you seek to kill me? And the crowds answered him, we know you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Scroll down just a little bit further in verses 45 through 49 in the same chapter. Look at this. Then the officers who were sent by the chief priests and Pharisees to arrest Jesus, they said, why did you not bring Jesus in? And the the officers, astounded, said, no one ever spoke like this man. So the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law, they're accursed Let's look at John chapter eight, verses 48 through 53. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and a demon? You guys remember from not too long ago, Pastor Sam taught us about the racial tensions between the Samaritans and the Jews. Did not like one another. So they were definitely coming after Jesus here. And they said, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory, There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And that you said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? John chapter 10, verses 19 through 20. Last one there was again a division amongst the Jews because of these words. And many of them said, he has a demon and he's insane. Why should you listen to him? But others said, these are not the words of of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Guys, just look at the varying opinions of Jesus within the crowds. Where are all these opinions coming from? Where is the source of this certifiably false and slanderous testimony concerning the power of Christ coming from? Well, we look at Mark chapter three, verses 22 through 30, which is the parallel account to the Matthew 12 text. And it tells us in verse 22 that the propaganda that was init- it was initiated by, quote, the scribes that came down from Jerusalem who were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. He, by the power of the prince of the demons, he casts out demons. So this saying, the smear campaign, that Jesus is not actually exercising miraculous divine power by the power of Almighty God, but is actually powered by Satan, was nothing new. And its source was from none other than the religious leaders of Jesus' day. It came from the top down. Jerusalem spread this all throughout the land. The tagline was, Jesus has a demon. And it was constantly repeated in order to discredit Jesus. The religious leaders simply used the age-old tactic of repetition in order to make this false claim seem true. You guys know it. Repeat something long enough and eventually people will begin to think it's true. That's what we see going on here. And by the way, this saying was absolutely ridiculous and people knew it. As we've already seen from the supporting texts in John chapter three, John chapter seven, John chapter eight, and everywhere else that we've looked, there were many people in the crowds, both commoners and elite alike, who thought Jesus was indeed the Christ. They were convinced because of the miracles that he was doing on a daily basis and because of his direct claims of being sent from the Father. Any other notion about Jesus was simply illogical. And that is why Jesus responds to his critics in chapter 11 of Luke and the rest of our text with axiomatic statements and airtight logic. So with all that being said, let's get to our text again. We're gonna look at verse 17 and we're gonna carry on. Verse 17 says, but he knew their thoughts and he said to them, here's the axiomatic statement. It's a self-evident truth. That's what an axiom is. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a house divided against itself falls. Now we we in American culture, we've heard Abraham Lincoln say this, right? It's been repeated over and over and over again. Why? Because it's true. Any house divided against itself is laid waste and a house divided against itself falls. But there's a personal touch here because remember in the beginning of my sermon, I told you that the kingdom of Israel had civil war at one point and was split. If you guys wanna do further study on that, write this down, 1 Kings chapter 12, verses one through 20 will tell you about that split. But he's speaking to Jews who understand this personally from their own history. Now, allow me to just speculate a little bit. The Pharisees loved to flatter Jesus in public and curse him behind his back. They loved doing that because he was undeniably famous and undeniably doing the things that no one else had ever done in that type of fashion. And so when Jesus says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a house divided against itself falls, undoubtedly, the religious leaders go, amen, brother, amen. That is good teaching, good teacher. You are amazing. He casts out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Don't, don't pay attention to him. Yes, that's wonderful. And then Jesus flips it. He says, and if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? And they go, they go oh yeah, that don't make any sense. Huh. For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then who do your sons cast them out by? Y'all see it? He flipped it. And they're without intellect. (laughs) They are seeing red at this point. They're fumigating because he's right. And like I have spent 40 40 plus minutes telling y'all, the qualitative differences between what Jesus did, both the method and the result, were enormously different than what the magic shows of the Pharisees were. Everyone knew it. And again, Jesus here is publicly humiliating them in order to show them their illogical reasoning, in order to be merciful, really, to them. He could have just wiped them out on the spot, but he didn't. He wants to show them their thinking is flawed. Look at verse 20. This is very important here. After he's got done stating the axiom axiom, and then flipping it on their heads and no doubt making them upset, He then says this, consider this, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That phrase, the finger of God, is very significant. Turn in your Bibles if you want. It's gonna be up on the, the screen, but turn in your Bibles to Luke, I'm sorry, to Exodus chapter eight. We're gonna look at verses 18 and 19. Just a quick contextual breakdown. Exodus, most of us know that story. It's when the people of God are delivered from their slavery in Egypt. Uh, The man of God, Moses, comes to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and says, let my people go and worship me. He is obviously the mouth of God. Worship me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh time and time again said no. And he continually hardened his heart to the word of God. And and by the time we find ourselves in Exodus chapter eight, verses 18 and 19, the 10 plagues has begun. And if you guys wanna do a fascinating study on your own time, the 10 plagues weren't random. God specifically used those plagues to show that the gods of Egypt were inferior to the God of Israel. But verses 18 and 19 says this, the magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. So you have Moses and Aaron performing works of God, and you have the magicians practicing their secret arts who served Pharaoh. We got phony, we got God. It parallels our text today. Notice what the magicians say about what Moses and Aaron were doing. Verse 19, then the Moses, uh, sorry. then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them just as the Lord said he wouldn't have. The magicians of Pharaoh's day knew God when they saw it. They said, this is the finger of God. We can't do this. We can't, we can't replicate dust becoming gnats. We could do the other things that they did, but we can't do that. This is, this is beyond us. Psalm uh, chapter 8 Verse three also uses the phrase, the finger of God, when it's talking about God placing the, the, the stars and the moons and the, and the different planets in the, in, the, in the heavens. And so that phrase, finger of God, basically means that it is the work that only God can do. And so following back Jesus's logical flow here, if I cast out demons by the power, the finger of God, then know this, the kingdom of God is here it is upon you. And then Jesus ends with a very simple illustration. In verses 21 through 22, he says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all of his armor on which he relied and distributes his plunder. Now, contextually, we know that Jesus when he refers to the strong man, which is Ishkuras in the Greek, it means forcible, boisterous, mighty, and powerful, is referring to Satan, Beelzebul, the, the prince of demons. So but understand this about Satan. By Jesus' own words, Satan is forcible, boisterous, mighty, and powerful. Understand this. If you are not a Christian and you are dabbling with Satan and satanic things, you are coming up against the most powerful created being in all of creation. Don't mess with that. If you are a Christian, know that the power that is within you is greater than that that was in the world. Don't mess with Satan, however. <laughs> Don't fear him, but respect the fact that Jesus himself is saying he is a strong created being. Know that. But when someone stronger than he attacks him, Satan. Satan and overpowers him. He takes away from him all his armor on which he relied and distributes his plunder. Someone stronger than he is clearly the one who does what he does by the finger of God. Clearly, because no one is stronger than God. Nobody created God. God answers to no one. There is no higher authority than God. He doesn't have to ask anyone, hey, what do you think we should do? Oh yeah, uh huh. okay, we'll do that. No, God acts because he wants to act and he does what he himself wants to do. And what he wants to do, according to our text, is destroy the kingdom of darkness. The word overpowers here in the Greek is nakeo. Nakeo, it comes from the word Nike, which you guys know Nike very well. It means to subdue, to conquer, and to get the victory over. It can mean overcome or prevail. Essentially, what Jesus is saying here is the kingdom of God is prevailing over the kingdom of darkness. Because what I do is the power of God, undeniably, So the point today, guys, is very, very simple. The point today, guys, is very, very simple. Notice what Jesus said. He takes away from him all his armor on which he relied and distributes his plunder. What is the plunder according to the context of what we're reading? Well, what is Satan after? What is God after? I can tell you this. Satan hates God. If you want to see how much he hates God, go read Isaiah chapter 14, starting at verse 14, Ezekiel chapter 28, starting at verse 12, I believe. And you can read about Satan's hatred for God. But Satan hates all who are associated with God. That means he hates me, he hates you, and everyone else in the family of God. And he hates us with a a bitter hatred that we can't even begin to comprehend. And he's after your soul, He wants you to be with him where he is. Misery loves company. But God, on the other hand, is after your soul as well. He has made a way for you to know him. That is through the Messiah. And he has sent his Messiah and, by extension, all of his apostles, disciples, and all who believe in him to to, to spread the gospel message just like Taylor was saying earlier, our lives, if you are in Christ, your life is not about building your wealth. It is not about increasing your standard of living. That is a lie. It is about using the wealth, using the things that God has given you to preach the gospel, whether you're a pastor or not. I'm not a pastor. Sam just asked me to come up here and preach, and I'm humbled. But I'm just simply being an obedient slave to Christ. That's it. I'm not special. All of us here are meant to understand the the hope to which we have been called. And so understand this, verse 23. This is the whole point of today's sermon. Jesus says this, he who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters. I'll say it one more time. He who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters. If you are not with Jesus, then by his own words, you are against him. If you are not gathering souls into the kingdom of heaven with Jesus, then by his own words, you are scattering souls further into the kingdom of darkness. I say all this with love. I'm simply repeating the words of our Lord. Now, some people would say, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't hate Jesus. I got nothing against y'all. That's your truth. And I got my truth. (laughs) Y'all heard that? That's your truth. That's cool. You do you. I'm going to do me. That's fine. But understand when you say, I'm going to do me, know what that means. That means you're going to scatter souls further into the darkness. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This was Jesus' main saying throughout his entire ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So I ask you, are you with Christ? If not, the evidence has been made very clear. You are against him. If you're not with him, here's the good news. You don't have to stay that way. Pastor Sam last week finished off off the Lord's Prayer with verse 13 in chapter 11 of Luke. The question is, if you're not with Christ, how do you get to be with him? Chapter 13, or sorry, chapter 11 of verse 13 says this. If you then, being evil, know how to give good good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? Guys, we know that the the New Testament teaches that when you repent, when you confess your sin, which all that means is that you agree with what God says about your, your sin. Confess. That's what repentance means, to turn from loving your sin, turn from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God, to loving Christ Jesus. When you do that, and you pray and ask Jesus to become the Lord and Savior of your life, immediately you are given the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit, it says in Ephesians chapter one, uh, verse 13 or 14, it says that the Holy Spirit is our Erebon. It's our wedding ring. It's our guarantee. It's, our, it's the guarantee of our inheritance in heaven with God. That's all you have to do. That's it. So if you are not with Christ today in this room, I pray that you would seek him, that you would repent. He's a loving savior. Like I said, he could have wiped out all of his enemies right here with a word. Boom, done. But he didn't. Because he wants to see everyone come to him in repentance. Let's pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, we love you. God, we thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace towards us sinners. Lord God, we need desperately your your grace and your mercy, Lord God. And I thank you, Lord, that you are eager to give it, Lord. You are eager, Lord God. You are like a father, Lord, that holds us close, Lord God. And, And even when we think we're falling, Lord God, we're not. We're in your arms. God, you have us. Father, I pray that you would draw those people in this room who do not know you to you, Lord God. As you would grant them repentance, Lord God, and that they would pray and ask for forgiveness And God, that you would give them the Holy Spirit, who is their guarantee in heaven, who is their guarantee of their inheritance with you. Father, I I thank you, Lord God, for your word. I thank you, God, for the Bible, which from beginning to end is a unified story of the kingdom of God overcoming the kingdom of darkness by the power of our Messiah, our Savior, who went up on the cross and took our sin, our penalty for our sin on his own body. He was without sin, but he endured the wrath of God the Father fully for all the sins of of those who would believe in him. And then was raised on the third day, signifying your acceptance of his sacrifice. And for all of those who would believe in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, we can now be with him, where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, For all eternity. God, I pray, Lord, that those who do not know you in this room would seek you. And God, I pray that those who do know know you would grow in their knowledge of who you are so that we may be useful in your kingdom. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.